Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So thank you guys for all your messages over the last little while uh, for all the guests and stuff like that. It's been crazy and over a year old, it's it's kind of a little bit mental. I'm looking forward to 2020 to see how many people we can kind of get on and the kind of looking at decent guests. Got a few booked in now for 2020. Excited for the next little while. And this episode today is, I'm really looking forward to this. This is with a fellow Irishman. Um, it's Alan Flanagan, the nutritional advocate on Instagram. Um, to say that Alan is a smart man is an understatement. I've been following Alan for quite a while and the information he puts out is is very, very good. It is, his, his approach to everything is from an educational background and I'm really looking forward to kind of having a chat with him. Uh, Alan is a former practice, practicing lawyer. Um, he has an MSc in nutritional medicine and he's currently pursuing his PhD in chrononutrition in the University of Surrey. And he has recent, recently launched uh, Alinea Nutrition, which is an online education hub dedicated to empowering others with clear, impartial evidence-based knowledge and understanding about the science of nutrition. So Alan, thank you so much for kind of coming on today and having a chat. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Shane. I'm looking forward to it. So Alan, for those who may not be aware of yourself, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your story and how you kind of got into the field of chrononutrition and what chrononutrition is? Yeah, so um, we... I guess we'll start with what chrononutrition is, which is the study of timing of food intake and and how that relates to health, basically. And we there's there's a few components within timing. There's the actual time of day, and then there's also factors like how you distribute energy during the day. So, like the actual amount of calories in any given meal, the frequency of eating occasions. Um, the regularity of meal patterns so there's a lot that kind of goes into it but broadly speaking it's focused on time as a component of um, how you respond to food intake at different times of day and it's um, based on the idea that we have these internal biological rhythms that are tied to the day and night cycle and they have uh, basically around a 24 hour kind of rhythmicity across the day and the night and those rhythms are quite important for a range of functions but we're starting to understand they're actually quite important to dictate how you process digest absorb and use the food we eat so that is the kind of underlying basis for 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 the study of of chrononutrition i got into it um as you said yeah my background was in law i kind of came to nutrition from a funny background in terms of I didn't do biosciences I did history and English as an undergrad I did law then I worked as a barrister in Dublin for for nine years um, but I always had this kind of fascination with nutrition and I think I was always drawn to try and read research and I found myself doing that in my spare time but I had no idea what I was doing you know reading research is a skill and I wanted to learn it so I found my way to an MSE program at the University of Surrey, which thankfully does let in a couple of strays, people from non-biosciences backgrounds, um, and got in. And, and that really just accelerated my kind of learning curve, but also just my, my general kind of obsession with this subject started to crystallize. I did my thesis in shift workers, so NHS nurses that worked 
rotating shift patterns and I wanted to look at how they redistributed energy from when they worked day shifts to their night shifts and how that might influence their health and that kind of got me interested in the the chronobiology and the nutrition stuff um, and the relationship between the two and then um, one of the um, research groups at the university got a grant to do um, a study um, and for which they needed a, a PhD and I got offered that and I jumped at the opportunity and so that's what we've been doing this year was a study in humans basically using a, a forced jet lag protocol so they spend three days in the lab on Irish time or UK time so waking at say seven breakfast at eight lunch at one dinner at six bed at ten and then on the third day we keep them up till 5 a.m and then everything is delayed by five hours so all of their meal timing is delayed by five hours their sleep timing is delayed by five hours and we keep them on that schedule for five extra days looking at how that sudden essentially what is jet lag basically um changes their response to the, the the meals that we were feeding them and changes their energy expenditure changes their blood glucose tolerance and, and all of those things so we're just starting to look at the data now um, so hopefully we'll start having some results uh, to kind of get ready to publish in the new year happy days and like i think jet lag is one of those big things and especially and kind of, we're recording this before christmas and a lot of people are kind of coming from far and wide i know i've got friends coming over from like the likes of new york and australia to come home for christmas when it, regarding jet lag and stuff like that is it kind of worse for your body clock to kind of go west or is it worse for your body clock to go east and what kind of protocols would you put in place to kind of ease the stress on the body ease the stress and the sleep and all that kind of things yeah, so it's definitely worse going east, and that's because you're going into time zones. And as opposed to, let's say, for example, we flew from Dublin to New York or Chicago, um, you would leave Dublin at, say, 11 a.m., but you would land in New York at, say, what would be 2 p.m. And so the net effect of traveling west is just the same as, say, staying up late. You know, it's, it's staying up later that day, extending the amount of time you're awake so you can do a trip like that and you can kind of use caffeine and, and keep yourself awake during the afternoon and by the time you get to the evening in that time zone you're, you're actually already quite tired because it's basically like you've stayed up until say 3 or 4 a.m irish time uh, and so it's 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 a quicker adapt adapt uh, like adaptation from that process of of, of kind of going west because you're just staying up later essentially in terms of your body clock going east is way more challenging because you're going into these time zones so you might arrive somewhere and it's early in the morning but you've already been awake 24 hours with your traveling um you know you might have got bits of sleep on the plane um and essentially it's very difficult for you to to try and shift to the daytime hours and functioning during those daytime hours in your new time zone and so it can often take a longer process to adapt when you go east there are protocols that can help with this um, they generally relate to three main factors your light exposure your meal timing and melatonin supplementation can be helpful and um, I always have to caveat melatonin supplementation in an Irish or English context with the fact that it's not commercially available here. 
just go into like a supplement store here and buy it. But for example, if you were going to a time zone where you're in that time zone, you are going to be, say, going to bed at 10 o'clock or half 10 as usual. But in Ireland, maybe that time corresponds to 3.30 in the afternoon, for example. You would take half a milligram dose of melatonin, which is low enough not to get drowsy, but enough to actually have an impact on your internal circadian rhythms. Um, for three days before traveling and that would that would start the process of shifting these internal rhythms the other thing that would be important to do is to try and start to change your light exposure relative to the time zone you're going to so if it was 7 a.m in the new time zone for example corresponded to like say 6 p.m here you would try and use like a blue light box or some form of artificial blue exposure that would give you that kind of um, hit, basically, of light exposure. Um, so there, there are there are different strategies that that people can use. They generally involve trying to mimic the light exposure of the time zone you're going to, perhaps using some external melatonin supplementation to help that process. And then also trying to alter your meal timing so that it slowly starts to shift to the time zone that you're going to over the course of about three or four days. Um, but, you know, a lot of those things, you can do them all, um, but you're not a very social travel companion if you do. <laughs> <laughs> and when you talk about kind of with the blue light exposure, the big thing at the minute seems to be, be the blue light glasses. Right. Is there any is there any real benefit to those? And if so, is there a particular brand or like is there a price range that some people should kind of aim for if they're kind of looking for them? If they're going to go out and buy them on Amazon or whatever it may be. Yeah, so there is a benefit to them. There's some new um, research publications, for example, that have looked at and um, the difference in your melatonin increase in the evening. And just for example, where they have them playing video games in the in the in the hours before bed, um, and one group were wearing these kind of orange tinted blue light blocking glasses, so they had quite a nice still kind of increase in their melatonin levels before bed, which is what you want to get. And the thing about blue light, which is a type of light that we would obviously have on a on a clear blue sky day, we would also have it on an overcast day by just being outdoors in natural light exposure. But also it's a type of light that's emitted from TVs and smartphones and basically electronic devices. And so in the evening, it still has a suppressing effect on melatonin, which isn't necessarily a positive thing for our internal rhythms. But these, so these glasses can block that light. Um, the thing is, right now the technology is still like kind of advancing and the ones that fully block all blue light have these really orange tints and if you go outside in them you look like Bono and I don't think anyone wants to do that so so, so um, generally what I recommend there's a, actually an Irish company called Amberware and they do clear lens blue light blockers that are really good you would no one would know you, the people would just think you're wearing like normal like reading glasses you know um, and it 
doesn't block the entire spectrum of blue light, but it blocks the vast majority of it. And so what, what I generally advise for people if they're getting that pair is wear the glasses, but also in the evening, I think it's really important that people are mindful of their evening light exposure. So try not to have the house, you know, like really brightly lit or wherever you live, really brightly lit, like overhead lights. Try and use like soft side lighting. Try to be mindful of screen time before bed or in the hour before bed and try and minimize it. The other thing is it's not just the blue light emitted from a screen. It's also the intensity of light and the proximity. And that's why I, you know, phones or Kindles or, um, you know, iPads are a bit more problematic because people are holding them literally six inches from their face, uh, often while they're in bed. So a lot of this, a lot of this, um, sleep hygiene stuff uh, as it relates to light exposure is very much just about having a bit of a routine and, and kind of understanding that you know getting ready for sleep you know sleep isn't just an acute thing it's not like oh i'm just going to go to sleep now and fine and a lot of people are like that but for people that struggle with sleep it's really about being more mindful of that wider environment and what what you're sleep environment is going to be like not just in your bedroom but kind of in the hour and 90 minutes before you're planning to go to bed that was my next question regarding how long beforehand should you kind of be putting them on before you yeah. kind of notice um so generally speaking i mean particularly when it's dark out um i think just wearing them in in the evening hours you know once someone's home is isn't a bad idea um the longer beforehand probably the better you know if someone goes to bed at 10 you know from say seven onwards um because it gives you that opportunity to kind of alter the light being detected by your eyes and signal to your brain basically um so generally speaking i would just kind of put them on in the evening um you know once once you're home and by evening i mean say six o'clock or onwards but i'd still think that generally speaking for people that do struggle with sleep and struggle with people struggle with sleep for different reasons but for people that struggle with the shutting off aspect right so these are people who are like the overthinkers the go to bed even if they're tired the head hits the pillow but they're thinking of 100 things they need to do the next day and they're writing lists in their brain and all that kind of stuff often you know sitting up at half eight doing emails probably isn't the best idea for those kind of people so deliberately having um a, a kind of routine where you're deliberately shifting your your state and your trait right you're deliberately making a conscious decision to end the day you know make a list of the stuff you have to do tomorrow write it out and just have a routine that is basically you saying i'm closing off today and i'm getting ready to go to bed um and that can be a really beneficial step for a lot of people who do struggle with kind of shutting off in the evening and therefore kind of aren't necessarily perhaps getting to sleep kind of as quick as they should or or are slightly kind of restless in terms of when they're going to sleep that's really good advice and then i know you're kind of speaking about when you're when you're on a plane and stuff like that you're you're kind of giving meals and stuff um, yeah is there any advice to someone who is kind of coming in at say seven or eight p.m. and they're potentially going to bed at ten p.m., like how 
long before bed or how soon before you go to go to bed should you be kind of eating your food in order for it to kind of digest properly yeah so that's a really interesting thing and some of the research is a bit ambiguous because often it's just defined as the evening right but like what's the evening of what 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 are we talking about because eating a meal at six o'clock is going to be quite different to eating a meal at nine o'clock you know in terms of responses and so a lot of the problems with the research is because they use these really kind of wishy-washy definitions of evening but evening could be quite broad in its definition and different research groups will some will say the evening is six o'clock to midnight some will say the evening's 3 p.m to like 8 p.m you know so creates a bit of a difficulty with trying to kind of hone in on what the answer to that question might be but we do have some kind of ideas and one is energy intake after 8 p.m seems to not you know be a positive overall um energy intake after 8 p.m tends to mean um discretionary calorie intake so people have actually already had dinner but a lot of their energy intake is coming in the form of snacks after dinner and before bed um and it's additional energy at a point in time where our internal rhythms are preparing for a rested fasted state of the day which is basically when we're sleeping generally speaking although this is not a hard and fast rule i think a two-hour gap between last eating occasion and and bed is a good idea it gives a bit of a time to have a, a bulk of that meal digested it also um i think is important to kind of just bear in mind that eating occasion can be any kind of form of intake right so i use the term eating occasion as a neutral term because you know you could have your dinner at six um but again people are prone to eating or snacking after that meal so i think being being mindful of the proximity to your bedtime that you eat um I think broadly speaking, a two-hour gap between your last actual calorie intake in bed is not a bad idea. Energy intake after 8 p.m. doesn't seem to be great um, in terms of uh, behavioral uh, kind of relationships between energy intake after 8 and people kind of over-consuming energy intake, eating a lot of kind of energy-dense foods and stuff like that in close proximity to bedtime. The one thing that I think is important to caveat, though, because I imagine a lot of your listeners are quite active, um, is that for people that are, you know, particularly resistance training or, you know, they're doing CrossFit and maybe they finish work at 6, they're training at 6.30 or 6.45, they're home at 9. And so I'll often get a question of like, well, if I want to consider this kind of the, the, the time stuff and all of this circadian rhythm stuff, you know, what do I do at that point I get home? So my advice is generally structure your total daily energy intake. So most of it's coming before your training bout. So that means you're still covering your basis for your total energy intake. We know that you don't necessarily need additional carbohydrates to, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. You don't need a huge amount. And really what we'd want to get in that window is, is adequate protein intake to stimulate that muscle protein synthesis response so what i generally say to people if they do train in the evening after work and they don't really get home late is 
have the bulk of your energy early and you know across the day leading up to training and then have a kind of light high protein lower carbohydrate and snack and, and fat snack after that training session which will be enough to kind of keep you ticking over with muscle protein synthesis until the next morning when you can get up and, and start a new day of a new day of energy intake um so you know coming home and maybe having a shake like with them at the gym or coming home and making a smoothie with like a protein powder or you know some fruit and frozen berries or having some like non-fat greek yogurt with some you know with a banana or something those kind of high protein protein rich lower carbohydrate and, and fat snacks um after training before bed it's not it's not a huge energy load um protein appears to be digested during the biological night which is different to carbohydrate and fat so there's a there's a kind of general although we're missing a few there's a few gaps in the research i think generally we could say that that's um a strategy that's going to get them the response they need from training without like necessarily compromising on any of this other stuff we're talking about that's brilliant information i think that's a big thing for a lot of people because a lot of people don't particularly want to get up early in the morning to train they right. would vote most people are, a lot of people would focus generally and kind of go in the evenings to the gym you can kind of notice we see that when you go to the gym yourself is that the evenings are a little bit crazier yeah and a lot of people kind of come up to myself or pop me questions on instagram and kind of asking questions about kind of the nutrition in the evenings what should they eat after workouts and how soon before they go to bed so i think that's a phenomenal phenomenal answer so thank right. you so much for that i got i got asked a question you know for example recently someone said to me but like what if i get to they were talking about say kind of macro and calorie tracking and they're like what if i get to the end of the day and it's 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 nine o'clock and i have a thousand calories left should i just eat that thousand calories and i said look if you're they were a crossfitter i said if you're getting to the end of the day and you have a thousand calories left you've just badly planned and structured your meals like that's you you fucked up like that's there's no way you should have a thousand calories left at nine o'clock at night you know and that that's the tendency with macro tracking to kind of be a bit problematic for people is that there the tendency is then like oh well, I have a thousand calories left I should just shovel down a load of like shit to get a thousand calories in at 9 30 p.m and I'm just like I don't think that's a good idea so my point was, yeah, you, if you get to that end of the day and you have a thousand calories left, you've you've badly structured your your eating plan for that day. So just structure it better, you know, have more energy intake at your lunch and your your pre workout meal, um, and have the bulk of your daily energy over the course of the day because you're fueled for your training session. Then you don't need a huge amount of energy. You also are protein fed throughout the day. So because you've had protein prior to your workout, you know, that influences your your anabolic response after the workout. So you don't need to be, you know, throwing down heaps upon heaps of protein because you have you're, you're in a protein fed state when you're training. So, yeah, I think that's generally my advice for people that do train in the evening is have the bulk of your energy beforehand and keep your kind of post workout meal to a protein based, uh, high protein based light kind of snack. That's a, that's a brilliant answer. I think I, I love the, the fact that you brought that up as well. Like what what happens if I have X amount of calories left for the day? It's just like I've, I've been there myself from working the crazy schedule. It's just I didn't plan my meals out properly enough or right. I didn't put enough logic into it. Yeah. Um, And it's one of those habits they can kind of easily fall into and then you're kind of just shoveling the food into you, kind of going straight to bed. Right. Yeah. Um, 
working the PT hours that can definitely that can definitely happen. And a lot of people work crazy hours as well. Uh, it just seems to be the way people are kind of functioning or not functioning at the minute. And a lot of people kind of rely on caffeine a lot. Yes. Caffeine is. I only started drinking coffee when I became a PT. I just didn't like the smell of the taste. So I've only been drinking caffeine for a short space of time compared to the rest of the world. Can you kind of kind of give a little bit of insight into what happens to your circadian rhythm and your sleep patterns and stuff like that when you drink caffeine and how long before uh, you're kind of before you actually go to sleep is the yeah. best time to kind of have it? So there are generally two processes that build up that are kind of both related to when we sleep and, and how tired we are in the evening. One is like a homeostatic sleep drive. Um, and what that complicated term essentially means in plain English is the drive that you have to sleep that comes from simply the balance of how long you've been awake versus how long you've been asleep. So, you know, if you've had a, a good night's sleep the night before and you get up, you could probably function quite well that day without necessarily experiencing fatigue. You know, if you had a bad night's sleep or, you know, you, you only got five hours sleep or something like that, you know, you're going to have a, a, a greater sleep pressure building up uh, over the course of that day, particularly if you have to be awake and have to work. So there's one, that's one part of the sleep drive. And then the other is the, the actual physiological processes. So we have our internal circadian rhythms, which in the morning we'll have an elevation in cortisol, which is a good thing. It kind of is responsible for like getting us kind of ready for the day, getting us ener internally kind of energy availability and all of this stuff. In the evening, then cortisol will drop off or it should drop off in a healthy circadian rhythm. And then we'll get an increase in melatonin and that will start to, again, kind of kickstart the processes that get us ready for sleep. But a part of that buildup process is the accumulation in the brain of a compound known as adenosine. And when adenosine builds up, it, it adds to our sleep pressure. Caffeine works as a, as a drug by inhibiting um adenosine receptors and so you don't get that buildup of and that's why caffeine has that wakefulness effect because it inhibits this kind of molecule um, you don't get that buildup of it and you get you have a kind of an anti-fatigue effect or a, a wakefulness effect um, the difficulty with that is if we use caffeine kind of regularly throughout the day we're not getting that buildup of adenosine that will help kind of induce a, a, a sleep a positive, like well-regulated, healthy sleep cycle later in that day. The difficulty with establishing timelines with caffeine is that people vary in their genetic capacity to clear caffeine from circulation. So what I'm saying here very much relates to an individual's kind of their, their personal capacity to to clear caffeine and there's generally two main types of, of of kind of caffeine metabolism one are people who metabolize caffeine quite quickly so it's not in circulation for as long the other is people for whom they metabolize caffeine a lot more slowly um, the average half-life of caffeine so the half-life of a compound means how long it takes for 50 percent of its concentration to come down so for it to reduce by 50 percent is depending on the person but the average like four to six hours so 
you could have people that metabolize it quicker and their half-life is kind of more towards four hours. You could have people that metabolize it a lot slower and actually it's in circulation for six, maybe seven hours later. And so this is something to bear in mind because even if you've had caffeine at like 12 o'clock, midday, one o'clock, and you're a slow metabolizer, you may still have up to kind of 50% of that caffeine dose in circulation at 6 p.m. So, I mean, I am a habitual coffee drinker. I, 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 I love coffee. So my recommendation when it comes to a lot of sleep stuff is always trying to be practical for people as well because people, people don't want to give up coffee if they enjoy it. What I typically say, though, is try to be mindful of and be honest with whether you're sleep is kind of impaired somewhat or whether you have difficulty getting to sleep if you're someone for whom a cup of coffee keeps you wired for hours you know you're probably one of those people who maybe doesn't break it down as quickly um i would say try to keep your caffeine to the early part of the day you know so have your have your have your coffee or your couple of coffees pre-midday and give that time frame before bed a chance you know assuming you may not be going to bed till 10 p.m hopefully that's enough time for that to to decrease and you're also not topping yourself up um to kind of add to the caffeine in circulation and also add to that inhibition of adenosine buildup over the course of the day so the message is definitely not give up your coffee but the message is be mindful of the effect and the interaction that caffeine has with sleep be honest with how much coffee you drink, how much caffeine you take in during the day in the form of other things as well, like monster energy drinks or Red Bull or whatever. Um, try to be mindful of how you think you process caffeine. I mean, short of doing a genetic, you know, 23andMe, you're not going to know whether you're one of those types, but just think about how does caffeine affect you? You know, some people can be just lit for hours. Some people like, you know, I know people that could have a cup of coffee at seven o'clock and go to bed and just go straight to sleep, you know. Um, that's not to say that that's not interfering with their actual sleep at a deeper level. But generally speaking, try and keep caffeine to earlier in the day um, and try to be mindful of your overall intake and try to also just be honest with yourself as to whether, you know, if you're if you are struggling with sleep or sleep quality or you're finding your sleep slightly disturbed or you're finding a difficulty getting to sleep, you know, if you're having caffeine at three o'clock in the afternoon, that could be a low hanging fruit to try and troubleshoot that and change that and see how it um, see how it helps your sleep. I'm delighted you kind of brought up the kind of the aspect that you kind of drink. You may drink coffee later on in the evening. I know and kind of like potentially in like France or Mediterranean places, they would drink coffee as part of kind of like their meals and they'd eat a lot later. Right. And they may not, may not have an impact on their sleep, but they may have an impact on sleep. I also know my, my old man would have coffee at like say eight or 9 PM and I wouldn't have, he says it doesn't have any impact on his sleep, but I can see from his, when he wakes up in the morning that he ha he's been asleep, but he hasn't been deep sleep. Rest, if you know right, what I mean. Sleep. Yeah. 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 There, there is a difference. I'm, I'm delighted that you've kind of made, you're trying to make people aware of, yeah, just be aware of it. You know, um, I, I think part of the problem with some of this health stuff, whether we're talking about sleep or nutrition is, you know, the best case scenario can often be a scenario that's not necessarily practical. <laughs> um, you know, and that was you know one of the things with Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, which I was going to talk about really the book, popular. Yeah. 
Yeah, but the problem with the book was, as much as the information was really interesting, it was about as practical as, like, go and live in a cave for the rest of your life and give up caffeine and alcohol. You know, it, it just didn't really give people any degree of leeway and, and accessibility in terms of the information. Um, and I think we do have to be realistic that people people live their lives in the real world. People have... Uh, not everything we do has to be, you know, because it's going to make us healthier, you know? <laughs> like, like, especially at this time of year when you're thinking about how many pints you're having. Like, I mean, there's social benefit there's all these other intangible aspects to health and and well-being and mental health in particular that i think we can we we, like i think people are becoming a bit more live to now but i just think it's important we actually consider those things and so when i talk about caffeine and sleep my message is never you need to give up coffee if someone loves coffee that's not a particularly nice step for them to have to try and entertain taking so it's just about being aware of it um, and being honest with whether it is having an impact, maybe just thinking about how you could restructure it so you have it kind of first thing in the morning and maybe you have a, a mid-morning cup, but you cut off your caffeine intake from midday onwards or something like that, you know, and that, and that will just depend from person to person. So I think it's the awareness and the individual aspect that, that we just want people to pay more attention to. How much sleep do we actually need and where does this whole eight hours come from? And that was kind of, and it's kind of yeah. one of those things you're kind of, grown up on if you know what i mean i don't know from doing a little bit of research and kind of the evidence-based side of things the eight hours may not be the secret number and there are people are different types and all this kind of stuff Um, right what's your kind of impact on what's your kind of look into it yeah so so eight as a number itself is nothing necessarily special but what we understand about sleep is So I think it'll be helpful to just explain to listeners like what kind of sleep architecture is, like what happens when you sleep. There are five distinct phases um, and they're literally phase one, two, three, four, and then rapid eye movement or REM sleep as the fifth stage. Generally speaking, phase one sleep is quite light. That's when you kind of like wake up and you're kind of conscious of the duvet on you or, you know, your place in the bed or stuff like that. Um, and then we progressively go into what's known as like slow wave sleep. And that, uh, the wave term is just like basically what's going on in your brain, like the wavelengths of, of, of electrical um, uh, kind of activity that are going on. And they represent different things in terms of processes that are going on from, you know, um, restoration to things like memory consolidation. So phase three and phase four are, are deeper phase sleeps. And then we go into rapid eye movement, which is where your body actually is paralyzed from the neck down, but your uh, eyes are are basically moving um, rapidly. It it literally is what it says. But why the reason you're in that paralyzed, body paralyzed state is because that's generally dream mode. And your body seems to, and the theory is it just, it, it, it wouldn't be good if you acted out a dream. You know, you're getting chased by a tiger. You don't want to, like, punch the person in the bed next to you. <laughs> so during rapid eye movement sleep, your body is actually paralyzed and doesn't move, but your brain is highly active. And rapid eye movement is where pretty much the the, the thinking in sleep research is that's where all the, all the magic is happening. Now, the reason that, the, that the, this relates back to the time thing is that as we go through sleep, so a sleep cycle 
is going from phase one sleep to REM and back. And on average, that takes 75 to 90 minutes. But what we know is that as you progress through sleep cycles during the night, your capacity to go back into REM quicker um, improves or, or, or becomes a lot shorter. So for your first two sleep cycles, you might go phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, REM, phase one, phase two, phase three. So it takes you a long time to get back to REM. But in later, in third, fourth, fifth, sixth sleep cycle, you might be going phase three, phase four, REM, phase two, phase three, phase four, REM, phase three, phase four, REM, right? So you're getting back to REM stage sleep a lot quicker. And so it's not that eight hours is necessarily magical, but it's that an accumulated run of these 75 to 90 minute sleep cycles is highly beneficial because you're getting more time as a percentage of your total sleep time, you're getting an increasing proportion of that time spent in REM. So that could be six and a half hours, could be eight hours, could be nine and a half hours. It depends on the, 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 the sleep duration. Um, there is inter-individual variability then factored into why or, or one person would sleep maybe, maybe slightly shorter or one person... <clears throat> excuse me, would sleep slightly longer. And that relates to what's known as your chronotype. And your chronotype is your time of day preference, a behavioral preference that an individual has for morning or evening or, or just being kind of neutral. And we colloquially call them, you know, morning larks or night owls. But the, it, it, it exists. Um, if listeners are interested in simply doing it, if you Google the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire and do that, it will tell you your chronotype. The Munich Chronotype Questionnaire is the best questionnaire that we have in research for, for establishing that. And it's free. You can, you can just Google it and do it. Um, so, <clears throat> for example, morning types or early types will tend to be people who have a preference for sleeping earlier in the evening and waking earlier. Later types will have a preference for being up later and, and getting up later the next day. So the the time of sleep will will relate to that. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the time of sleep will relate to that. And then also the individual preference for when that sleep kind of um starts will, will be influenced by by someone's chronotype but the actual eight hours thing i mean it's not that eight hours is necessarily a magic number so to speak but it's that if we factor in everything we just described about the architecture of sleep and what happens in the range of seven to nine hours give or take is is definitely something that is supported by our understanding of, of how we sleep. And, and yes, there might be individual variability in that, but there's definitely a solid reason for a window of seven to nine hours in, in a 24-hour day being uh, a, a, a something that we do want to aim for. Um, you can catch up a little bit with napping strategies, um, you know, people have said, oh, it's a myth that we're designed to sleep in one phase. The, the problem 
with that statement is that it relies on loads of cultural references from like the medieval period about like second sleep and the idea is people would have slept early in the evening when it got dark and then woken up and done a bunch of activities and then gone back to sleep again we, we don't really have anything to go on with that unless you want to read into Chaucer's Canterbury Tales where it's mentioned you know <laughs> like I'm not really sure that that suffices the other thing I think it's really important to mention is part of the problem with that debate is that it assumes that sleep is a homogenous global universal similar thing in all people in all places and and we just know that's not correct sleep is influenced by your environment your region of the world your light dark cycle in your region of the world so the idea that to that we can assume that that sleep is a universal uh, act in all people is 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 not correct and so there's a lot of variance in what constitutes good sleep for example there's a lot of variance in when people might you know uh, have a preference for sleep there's a lot of variance in how long someone might sleep to feel objectively or subjectively refreshed but generally speaking everything we know about how much time you spend in REM sleep and how that improves over the course of a night's sleep does support the idea that a range of 7 to 9 hours is very much something that will benefit that overall process of of getting into those phases of sleep where we think all of the kind of magic is happening so to speak in terms of recovery and memory consolidation and those kind of things and would you advise someone to track their sleep or are there anything that would is there anything that you would kind of encourage or any apps out there that are reliable for um, tracking your sleep I mean would I it depends so I think generally speaking um it could be useful. I think just be mindful that orthosomnia is also a thing. <laughs> and by orthosomnia, I mean um, obsessing over the perfect sleep. And that can often be more distressing for people than bad night sleep itself because they hear all this information about sleep and then they, they just start going to the nth degree with it the same way people do with, with diet, right? And orthorexia and clean eating and all that stuff people can very much become that obsessive about sleep so as long as you know being mindful of that um you know then some apps can be useful i mean sleep cycle is is generally considered one of the better kind of accessible apps you know things like garments and and stuff like that 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 kind of technology are are probably um, a lot more accurate than than the apps because the apps typically track movement in bed so they're not necessarily that accurate a reflection of actually how how, how deep your sleep quality has been um, so you might just not move a lot but you may not have particularly slept well in terms of at a restful level um, I do I recommend apps I mean I, I guess it just depends um, I think sleep issues can be really multifactorial I think, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of sleep issues are are kind of psychosocial. So I think often, you know, going, there is never any harm in if someone is really struggling with their sleep, going to some counseling or, or, or some CBT or some of those modalities that can help them maybe pick apart why they're struggling with their sleep. And, And often it's, you know, it's things like stress and worry and stuff like that. So it's, 
it's coming out as a sleep issue, but there's actually something kind of underlying going on that they need to address. Um, so that's one thing I always say. Sometimes if there isn't kind of those kind of like more psychosocial stuff going on, then sleep issues can be an environmental thing. They can be because people are not getting enough light exposure during the day. They're over-reliant on caffeine, particularly later in the day. They're eating later in the evening. Their light environment in the evening is very much the the opposite. It's what we would want during the daytime. People are getting at nighttime because of electronic uh, devices and different media and 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 you know just the general lighting uh, in their in their home environments. Um, so those things, I think, um, you don't need an app to do that. You know, I think most of the basic sleep hygiene stuff. You don't, you, you don't need an app for, you know, it's getting outdoor light exposure early in the day, you know, like we're recording on a day that, yeah, it's winter, but like, it's a pretty nice day outside. It's blue skies, you know, that kind of intensity of light is going to be really important to giving your internal circadian rhythms that signal of, hey, it's daytime. And for every 30 minutes you spend outdoors, you get a, an advance in your rhythms, um, which which is basically means you become kind of more aligned to the light dark cycle in the in the place in the world that you are. So I think that getting light exposure in the early part of the day, being mindful of your light exposure in the evening, maybe having a a, a screen time rule before bed, like no screen time an hour before bed, or if you are screen using screens, getting some blue light blockers and not having the place lit up like a Christmas tree, um, maybe having a some you know, de-stress or kind of end the day habits before bed, like writing out a list, to-do list for the next day or meditating or something that just changes your state and trait before going to sleep. Um, trying not to have massive meals within two hours before bed. Like all of those things are like the low-hanging fruit that will improve most people's sleep. And I don't really think you need an app to track any of that. Um, so I don't think there's any harm in using the apps, but just I think people should be mindful of like whether their app use with anything, it's the same with like my fitness pal or anything else, starts to become a bit obsessive, right? And they're just like, they're saying no to social occasions because they want a 100% score on their sleep cycle, right? That, like that happens. So um, just be mindful of those kind of things, I guess. That definitely happens with people trying to uh, get 100% on their score, especially if people are perfectionists and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's, right. it's I had to stop using sleep apps. Yeah, right. I, I, I use them for about maybe five days and I was kind of like, like this, is, this no, is not good for me. No, exactly. Uh, and the last the last kind of question, we spoke about caffeine and how it impacts on your sleep. We live, well, you live in the UK, but you're, you're Irish and mm. alcohol is a big thing, part of our culture, yeah. uh, especially now we're, we're, we're recording this before Christmas and yep. Christmas and well, probably this is going to come out in January, so people may be on dry January by then. But, right, yeah. Uh, it's for when people go on to the 1st of Feb. Uh, what kind of impact does alcohol actually have on your sleep, the quality, and what people may or may not think actually will it impact on their sleep, should I say? Right. So there's two things generally. One is that alcohol is kind of has a cultural place, you know, the, the whole nightcap kind of thing. Um alcohol is generally seen in a cultural sense as something that like is a wind down before bed and because alcohol acts as a sedative it can certainly help to induce a sleep um however 
just because it's a sedative and people may may get to sleep doesn't mean that it has a positive impact on their sleep as a whole and the real difficulty with alcohol is going back to everything we were talking about the different phases of sleep alcohol essentially stops our ability to get into rapid eye movement stages of sleep even minor amounts like one drink has the capacity to kind of stop that process of getting into deep phase sleep so people sleep with alcohol sure but they're spending a vast majority of that sleep time of that total sleep time in light phase sleep so they're not rested the next day they're not recovered the next day they're groggy and you're you're out of the you've you've had a, a sleep duration of you know whatever seven hours maybe but no you know none to very little of that time has been spent in the most beneficial stages of sleep when it comes to skill acquisition memory consolidation and and, and recovery and those kind of beneficial processes we were talking about so yeah that's just the reality of, of alcohol and sleep it, it it is what it is um again it comes back to that idea of you know balancing the needs that we we have for for social occasions that are enjoyable um with you know our health and you know not everything every single day we do has to be something that is like oh my god this is just the best thing to do for my health at this perfect time because the importance of social interaction family you know this time of year is a fairly unique time of year um it is a time when people come home or go to family and all those kind of things and so you know that enjoyment is is only acute we don't we don't do this every week of every (laughs) of every month of the year if we did that would be a problem but i i think um you know i guess focusing on good sleep you know like anything having a kind of 80 to 90 percent rule um and not sweating the small stuff in terms of a few nights of the year where you've social occasions that are, are really important to your general you know kind of enjoyment of life i think that's I think that's a brilliant point um even i've literally been writing down like a lunatic since we started and like, I actually can't believe it's like 50 minutes or over 50 minutes already. Um, like the, the notes there are phenomenal. Uh, everything from jet lag, blue light glasses, everything from kind of melatonin, eating before you go to bed, training in the evening, caffeine, um, napping, uh, impact on alcohol and stuff like that, or impact just sleep on your on alcohol on your sleep. Yeah. Um, so what's... one thing that I would say just on the light thing, now that it jogged my memory with the blue light blockers is, yeah, today is a nice day, but often at this time of year, particularly for people who are listening who are office workers, for example, they might have to get up at six or half six, you know, they're in the car or they're, they're on their commute at seven, they're in the office for eight or 8.30, it's still dark outside, uh, it's just getting bright at 8.30 here. And then they're in an office environment where the lighting is simply not enough to give them, to, to give their internal circadian rhythms that real signal that it's daytime. Um, you can freely now, like really easily accessible on Amazon or eBay, get these blue light boxes. Um, they're quite small. Some of them will charge up and are portable. And you don't have to stare into them. But as long as they're within kind of arm's length, you can have them shining essentially kind of on your face while you're working or having your morning coffee or on the laptop for the first. And if you use that for 30, 45 minutes, 
at the start of the day, um, it, it, it will give you that kind of jolt that your system needs. Um, and people often find them really beneficial for mood. Um, they're quite light therapy is, is quite common for seasonal affective disorder. Um, people also find them kind of energizing because the effect of light on the human system is it's, it's arousing, it's physiologically arousing. So, um, I think there's a lot of benefits, particularly in our kinds of climates where it is dark in the morning and people aren't getting that exposure to, to just have one of them. And they're not particularly expensive anymore. There's a lot of brands that do them and, you know, could be a good Christmas present to someone's self for the January, the <laughs> January sales. darkness. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And so, so you would use that in the morning and then in the evening you're doing the opposite. You're trying to minimize that kind of exposure to that kind of light. That's a, that's a great tip. So if anyone's listening to this in the January sales, go on to Amazon and see if you can kind of get, is there any particular brand that you'd recommend? Um, Philips do very good ones, but they are more expensive. But to be honest, you know, blue light is blue light. Like, you know, I would, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too hung up once it, once it has a kind of minimum of like 10,000 lux, which LUX, which is a measure of light intensity. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of much of a muchness really, to be honest. Perfect. Uh, and Alan, what's coming up next for you in the kind of the year you've kind of, you've launched the website. Have you got any seminars coming up or anything like that? Yeah. So on the 29th of February in Dublin, we're going to do a one day symposium on critical literacy in nutrition science is the, is the title, the theme of the day. And we're basically going to focus, it's obviously aimed at people kind of working in nutrition or nutrition professionals or medical professionals that are kind of interested in nutrition. And we're going to spend the day focusing on different aspects of nutrition science and, and how to, you know, common things that arise when you're reading nutrition research, things to look for, you know, how to, how to better critically appraise, um, whether it's an observational study or a meta-analysis or a randomized controlled trial. So there's going to be a general sale for tickets for that in early January. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be really beneficial for, for people that are working in nutrition to just kind of upskill on their critical appraisal skills. Um, websites live. And then next year for me kind of personally will be, I have a couple of um, proposals for some new studies. One, I want to look at protein feeding during the night uh, as a strategy for night shift workers. Um, and the other one is looking at um, kind of chronotype and social jet lag um, and the relationship between that and, and, and their dietary intake. Um, so hopefully, fingers crossed, I get someone to fund those studies. Um, and that would be my goal for next year would be to, to, to pull those two studies off and then spend my third year writing all of the results. The uh, the the night shift one is one that will definitely be of interest to a lot of people. I think in the research. That yeah, you know, it's the frustrating thing about nutrition science, dude. Is like, you send people this application, you're like, we think this could be really beneficial, and they're like, oh my god, that sounds so interesting, but like, what's in it for us, right? So the problem with nutrition as a field is because you can't like the the results aren't proprietary, right? It's not you can't patent the findings and. It means that you're relying on altruistic trusts and and funding bodies to fund you just for the good of humanity, so to speak. And so you get a lot of positive responses where people are like, God, that sounds really interesting. Sounds like it would be really beneficial, but like, no, sorry, we don't want to fund it. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, um, 
fingers crossed someone will fingers crossed alan thank you so much for giving up your uh your christmas holidays to have a have a chat with myself it's been we're nearly at an hour now so it's uh your your time and like it's i've been taking notes like a lunatic and i hope you guys have kind of enjoyed it if you guys enjoyed it all please do tag myself and alan up on your story so alan's uh, instagram handle is the nutritional nutritional underscore advocate um and please do kind of tag the two of us in it if you've enjoyed it pop the two of us messages if you have any questions thank you so much again for coming on alan i really really appreciate it thanks for having me on it's been great